Last week, we started a new series called Resolve. And in this series, we're talking about conflict, you know, and specifically how you and I can deal with conflict in a good way, how we can deal with it in a healthy way. In fact, how we could deal with it in a biblical way. And what we said was, we all deal with conflict. You know, it's a part of every single one of our lives. If we're a human being living on a, in a fallen world here on earth, um, conflict is like there's rub, you know, that happens. And so it's a part of us. If maybe you don't feel like you're in it right now, just wait a day or two and you will be, you know. It's like, it's just kind of how it goes. And conflict can be so tricky because um, it can hold us back in so many ways. You know, it can be a prison for us that can keep us from really becoming all that God desires us to become. And so being intentional um, about working through it in a healthy way, I think is absolutely imperative for us. And so last week, um, we kind of opened the series talking about ways that we maybe most naturally respond to conflict. And I gave you two different ways. We called them escape responses and attack responses. Escape responses and attack responses. And what we said was, both of those are kind of default for us, you know? So like when conflict comes my way, generally I have a tendency to either run and go, I don't want to deal with this, you know? I, I'm denying that it's happening. Uh, I'm going to get away from it. I'm just not going to deal with it. Or the tendency to attack, you know? I'm going to deal with this and I'm going to win this argument. And what we said was, both of those responses, you, you can go to the next slide if you want. Both of those responses um, are focused on me, right? So if I want to run when conflict comes, I go, I just don't want to deal with it, you know? I, I, I don't, I don't want to go through all the stuff that it takes to go through this. Or attack, we go, look at the injustice that's been done to me, right? And it's all kind of about me, the injustice done to me, the injustice done to people that I love. The focus is on me. But what we said last week was there's an alternative. There's what we call peacemaking responses, a peacemaking response. And we said a peacemaking response is fundamentally different in one big way. The focus in me dealing with the conflict is no longer me, but instead the focus and how I deal with the conflict is God, right? And what we said last week was the key to us dealing with conflict in a healthy way, in a peacemaking sort of way, is the gospel. We said the gospel is key. And we said the more and more that I understand the extent that God went to to reconcile me to himself and sending Jesus to die on the cross for me, the more and more I get that, realizing my own sinfulness, my own selfishness, how, much, how many times in my life I have offended God and offended people that God loves, the more and more I get how much, in spite of all of that, he sacrificed so I could be reconciled to him, then that like makes a difference in my life and how I relate to other people. It changes me. The more and more that I get the gospel, that I understand the gospel, the love of God in spite of myself at times, it changes me and it transforms me and it affects the way that I want to relate with other people. So even when somebody has deeply hurt me, right, which is what happens many times in conflict, even when somebody's deeply hurt me, I can go, you know what, that really hurts, but I have hurt God in deep and profound ways too. And look at what he's done in my life to reconcile me to him, to forgive me, to cleanse me. I'm going to offer that same sort of forgiveness and mercy and graciousness to other people, right? Like it, it fundamentally changes the way that we deal with conflict. And so the challenge for us is to lean into the gospel more and more. 
and to ask God to take us to deeper places of intimacy with him, of understanding with him. And when we do that, it changes us. I was talking to our staff this past week, and we were just kind of talking about this series. And I said, you know, what, what worries me or what scares me is that we settle for much less than this. Because we go, and I, and I think maybe the longer that we've been a Christian, um, maybe, maybe this can easily become our thought process. Someone hurts us and we go, ouch, that really hurt, but I know I need to turn the other cheek. I know I need to like hold my tongue and bite my lip and I'm just gonna grit my teeth and I'm gonna not say anything bad about them, you know, because I know that I'm supposed to. And that is really, really different than like, forgiving and reconciling with somebody because of what the gospel, because I understand the gospel. Like I understand how much God loves me. One is based on love, right? I understand he loves me. I want to extend that love to other people. The other is based on like, you know, legalism or empty religion or something like that, right? And so my fear is that we never really heal. We never really reconcile because we've never really leaned deeply into the gospel or we're not at least in this situation. So the gospel we've said is really the key to all of this. Last week I uh, recommended a book to you that um, I hope, I I know some of you have uh, picked it up. It's a really good book. It's called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. And it is the best book, I told you this last week, on peacemaking that I've ever seen. I think he does an incredible job of taking what this says, this book says, about conflict. The Bible says so much about conflict. He takes what this book says and it leads him to these conclusions that he writes about in his book. And so um, throughout this series, there's going to be some things from that book that I want to share with you but that have been particularly meaningful to me. Um, last week, we talked, one of the things from the book that we talked about, and I, this is kind of where I ended last week, uh, with the four G's of peacemaking. The four G's of peacemaking. Go ahead and throw that up on the screen. Four G's of peacemaking. And I told you last week that this was like uh, revolutionary to me in dealing with conflict in my life. Like it, it fundamentally changed, particularly the first one, it fundamentally changed the way that I saw conflict. And so here, here are the, the four G's. Glorify God, right? Like maybe through this conflict and how I respond, I could bring God glory. Second one is get the log out of our eye, which is what we're going to talk about today, kind of looking at ourselves. The third one is gently restore. So instead of like trying to win an argument or, or whatever, I want to restore the relationship and then go and be reconciled. I'm going to actually be intentional about going and doing it, right? And so I told you last week, like that first one, glorify God, it just, it like flipped a switch in my mind because previously I would look at, con- like we all deal with it, right? When I would deal with conflict, I'd look at it as like an inconvenience, you know, like an annoyance, a frustration, or, or a source of pain in my life. And when that's how we see conflict, we go, oh, you know, it's easy to fall into one of those, you know, escape responses or attack responses. And I go, I don't want to deal with it, or I can't believe what's happened to me. But when I step back and I go, you know what? Maybe, just maybe, God is not, maybe not even just allowing this conflict, but bringing this conflict into my life as an opportunity for me to bring him glory by how I respond, right? Like that, that changes our perspective on conflict in extreme ways because no longer is it like, oh, I have to deal with this. Now it's like I could either bring God glory by how I respond to this or I could bring God shame by how I respond to this. 
and I go, man, God loves me. The gospel, I got understand how, like the extent that he's gone to to reconcile me. And so I want to bring him glory in how I deal with all of this. You tracking with me? It changes things in, in just, in, in, I think, beautiful ways when we realize it's an opportunity to bring him glory. The focus is him, it's not me. So this week, we want to focus on uh, the second G. We want to focus on get the log out of our eye. I think before we look at how to deal with conflict, the conflict that we're in with other people, I think it's really good and healthy and important for us to think about the conflict that we have inside of ourselves. And so that's what I'm going to talk about this week. I've shared up here... Um, Quite a few times that my favorite sport growing up was basketball. I always loved basketball, despite my stature, despite my size. Um, I really loved basketball. So I'd play like, you know, grade school, middle school, high school. I was going to play in college. I hurt my back right before tryouts and didn't get to do that. But I played lots and lots of basketball in my life. And so um, before I was at Grace Church, I was in another great church in downtown Akron. It's called the Chapel. And the chapel is like right next to the University of Akron. So downtown Akron, right next to the University of Akron. And so um, they have a gym at the chapel. And so a couple days a week, we would um, open up the gym and we'd play like three different hours of basketball, right? And so guys, you know, most of the guys that came in were either from the inner city or were college students. And a lot of them had some, some hard backgrounds. And so we'd open up the gym and you know, you'd come and you'd play for like 55 minutes. And then we'd do a devotional with them. Like we talked to them about God for, you know, five to seven minutes, something like that, and pray with them. And it was just a, it was a wonderful time. Like if you love basketball and you love Jesus, it's like, it was, it was great. And so, um, you know, we did this for years. And anytime you get, you know, a bunch of competitive guys in a room together, playing sports like there's times that tempers flare up like most everybody's a good dude but most you know most of the time everything's fine but every so often you get you know little arguments and there was there was always trash talking you know not by me of course but by other guys you know and uh it, you know every so often you get a little fight a little scuffle and so you know there were lots of times i had to break up fights and stuff like that um, but one time it was different one time, uh, there was a guy who got into an argument with another guy. And that kind of thing has happened tons and tons of times. He got into an argument with another guy. And very quickly, he ran into the kitchen. So there's a kitchen right next to the gym. He ran into the kitchen, and he grabbed a knife. And he was going to stab him. That was what he was going to do. And um, fortunately... We, we were kind of on top of the situation and we were able to, you know, talk to him and kind of uh, diffuse the situation, get the knife away from him before he did, you know, something that obviously he would regret. But here's, here's what's so interesting about that whole situation. That sort of thing happened, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, over the years, hundreds of times. Like, guys argue. They talk a little trash. One guy gets on the other guy's nerves. Maybe they push each other a little bit. Like, that sort of thing happened over and over and over again. It wasn't out of the ordinary. But that day, this one guy's response was, was unique. Let me ask you, why do you think he responded the way that he did? Why do you think that one day, like, his response in that situation was disproportional to what was going on? right? Like they're just 
arguing a little bit, talking a little smack with each other, and he goes and he grabs a knife. Why do you think that is? 99 times out of 100, when somebody responds in a disproportionate way to the situation at hand, what do you think drives that response? I'll tell you what I think drives that response. He had something going on inside of him that was completely different, completely apart from that specific situation, right? Like he had some internal conflict that was happening in his life. And so, you know, he had maybe a secret pain or a struggle that he was dealing with that he wouldn't tell any of us about, that none of us knew about. Maybe he had like a secret burden that he was carrying, a stressor that he was struggling to deal with. And this kind of thing happens a lot, right? Like I bet we've all experienced that as well, where like, all, you know, all of a sudden maybe we, we do something slightly annoying or whatever and somebody just lays into us and you're like, whoa, where did that come from? Well, it's not from you, right? It's not from us, anything we've done. It's like some other stuff that they got on that, 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 that they have, they're carrying inside of them, right? And I'll bet many of us have been the one to do that to other people as well. Or somebody just does something that just annoys us enough that it sets us off and we lay into them when really it doesn't have anything to do with them. And so as we talk about conflict resolution, let me ask you this. How often do we think about dealing in a healthy, intentional way with the conflict inside of us? Like before we talk about, you know, how do I deal with conflict that I have with other people? How often do we think about, man, I gotta deal with, with my junk first. Man, I gotta deal with the stuff going on inside of me. If you're like me, we probably don't think about that all that often. And yet, if we wanna deal with conflict with other people in a healthy way, then we have to first at least be committed to deal with the conflict inside of us. So this is what I wanna talk about uh, this week. And what I wanna do, here's how I wanna spend the rest of our time. I wanna share with you something that uh, has been really helpful for me that's um, a, a psychological model. So it's actually not a Christian model at all. It's a psychological model um, that, um, for me, it's it just very helpful in understanding the complexity of myself, of my person. Okay, so I'm going to share that with you in a second. And then when I'm done with that, I want to um, show you that what this says really reinforces what this model says. I think it's always cool when, like, the, the, the secular world, maybe academia or whatever, discovers something and they're like, wow, here's truth. And then you pick up the Bible and you're like, yeah, actually the Bible's been talking about that sort of thing for years and years and years, right? Well, what I'm going to share with you is actually very biblical. And so we'll kind of end our time looking at some of the things that the Bible says about this. Okay, so, so what I want to share is something um, that I learned from a guy named Dale Henneman. So Dale is a, a pastor, a counselor, mental health counselor in the area, and just like a genuinely wise guy. And so I learned this from him. Um, by the way, if you, so I'm going to share this with you, if you want a recap of this, we've been talking about this interpersonal relationships E4 study that we've got. So um, this is something that we have on our website. You can also access it on uh, the app. This, so it's a six-session study. The second session, Dale takes about 15 minutes. He shot a video with this, about 15 minutes where he talks about this model that I'm going to share with you. So if you, if you hear this and you're like, man, I need to think about that more, instead of listening to this whole sermon again, you can go on there and you can hear him talk about it. Uh, he does a great job of explaining it as well. So that's in the second session in that E4 study. So um, here, here's the model. So in 1959, 
two American psychologists, one guy named Joseph Luft, the other guy named Harold Ingham, they developed this model to, um, to really help with like self-awareness and personal development and to, to communicate in groups, kind of group dynamic stuff. So I'm in a group and how, like, this is a model that helps us understand each other, to be real and understand each other. And it's called the Johari window or the Johari window model, okay? And um, the, the way that they got that name was they combined both of their first names, Joe and Harry, that's their names. I'm not joking, that's how they came up with the name of the Johari, they're the Johari window model. In psychology, it's also called the feedback disclosure model of self-awareness. It's easier to remember Johari, right? So anyway, um, what they did was they looked at the relationship between what we know about ourselves to be true and what other people know about us to be true. Okay, so go, go ahead to the next slide. So things that I know to be true about myself, things that I don't know about myself, compared to things other people know about me and things other people don't know about me. Okay, so this is kind of the, the dynamic that these guys looked into. And so what I want to do is I want to share with you um, each of these four quadrants here. You can see how it kind of looks like the panes of a window, right? Like, that, like a window with four panes. That's why they call it the window, the Johari window model. And so what I want to do is I want to share with you what's inside of each of these. But as I do, I want you to do the hard work and think about how it applies to you. Okay, so as we talk about these different parts of ourself, I want you to think, what does this look like in my life? What does this one look like in my life? How about this one? And I want you to be like personally applying this. Do the hard work of that, okay? So the first one is called our public self. It's the first quadrant, our public self. And so this is information about our person, our, our beliefs, our attitudes, our behaviors, our emotions, our feelings, our views on, on things like that, that other people know as well as I know, right? So these are things that I know about myself to be true, and these are things that I present to others that this is who I am, right? And so this is my public self, this is me. I recognize this about myself, and I'm showing you this part of me. And so like what I'm doing right now is a real tangible example of I'm giving you my public self. Right? Like this is, these are things, everything I say up here I think is true about who I am, the stories, my beliefs, my opinions on things, right? And so I know these to be true in my life and I'm on a stage telling you these things about myself. This is my public self that I'm presenting to you. And probably most of us don't present our public self on a stage in an auditorium, but we all present our public self on the stages of our lives, right? And so think about this. Think about the public self that you present in your family. Think about the public self that you present to your friends. Think about the public self that you present that you show at your job or your school. Think about the public self you show here at church. The public self you show like where you hang out, where you have fun, where you spend your leisure time. Right? Each of us has this part of us that we're showing to other people. That's our public self. And so I have some questions for you. Who is the public self that you're showing others? Like in your own life, who's the public self you're showing others? In your family, with your friends, at your job, in your school, at your church, where you hang out. And here's a, here's a follow-up question. Is it the same self in each of those groups? 
You know, like the person that you're presenting to other people, is it consistent across those groups or is it different? That's the first quadrant. That's the, that's the public self. The second quadrant is called the other self. And so this is information about yourself that other people know, but you are unaware of, right? And so these are things that other people can clearly recognize about us, but for whatever reason, they're out of our vision. They're out of our purview. They're out of our awareness, right? And so we can't see these things about ourselves, but other people can see them about us. So it's kind of like uh, in a, a tell in poker, right? If you're a poker player, you know what a tell is, right? And so I got a good hand, and when I got a good hand, I do something that tells other people that I don't even realize I'm doing, right? But it tells other people that I have a good hand. And so maybe I, um, every time I have a good hand, I, <clears throat> I clear my throat. And the observant other players go, he's got a good hand. And I'm thinking, I got a good hand and no one knows it, right? Or maybe I sit up a little bit straighter. That's a tell. That's the other self. Other people see it about us, but we don't see it about ourselves. Or, or maybe like uh, you talk to a body language expert. I always think this stuff's so interesting. You talk to a body language expert, and they'll say, when you're asking somebody a question, and if you want to know if they're telling you the truth or not, or if they're telling you a lie, look at their eyes. Their eyes give them away, and they don't even realize it. And so they'll say, if you ask a question, a normal right-handed person when they're thinking about responding, often they look up and to the left, opposite of their dominant hand. When they do that, they're accessing their memory to tell you the truth, to tell you what actually happened. A normal right-handed person, if you ask them a question, they look up and to the right, to the same side as their dominance, they're accessing their imagination to tell you something that's probably not true, right? Like these are tells, and, you, and the person doing it doesn't even realize. They don't even think about what their eyes are doing. They're just thinking, their mind is working. But to the observant other person, they go, I see this about you that you don't see about yourself. And so all of us have these things. These are like blind spots in our lives, right? And we all have these kind of blind spots or tells or things, things about us that other people see and recognize, but we don't see them. You know, so maybe in our conversations with people, I, I, I talk to somebody and I think I'm being just fine and nice, but my wife will tell me later, man, you were kind of condescending to that person. And you're like, Really? I didn't, I didn't even realize that I was that way, right? Like these are blind spots. These are part of our other self that other people see, but we have a really, really hard time seeing. So here's my question to you. Do you think there might be things about you that other people know and recognize that maybe you're unaware of? Do you think that there might be other things about you that other people know and recognize, but you're probably unaware of? And, and do you think there might be one or two or three other people in your life that you trust that you could ask to help you with this? Or you can get, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your best friend, right? Somebody trusted in your life where you go, like, tell me what you see about me because this is how I feel, but maybe there's things that I'm not seeing, right? That's our other self. The third quadrant is maybe the most dangerous of all of them, and it's our hidden self. And so this is information about yourself that's known to you, but you, kept, you have kept unknown to other people. And so this can be you know, personal information that you feel reluctant to reveal about yourself. You know, it could be feelings, past experiences, fears, secrets. It's different than privacy, right? Like some things, for example, things between a husband and a wife are private, but they're not secret. This is different. This is, this is your secret self. 
These are things that you know are true about yourself, but you will go to great lengths to make sure other people don't know it's true. And so this is what that guy that, with the knife that I was talking about was dealing with. Like he had a big part of him was this hidden self that he never talked about with other people. And he had this pain and this torment in his life that was eating him up. And a little argument, a little argument that's happened hundreds of times before set him off and he snapped, right? That's, that's secrets that he had. That's his hidden self. You know, maybe this is the abuse that happened to you as a child that you think no one would ever understand. No one, I can't talk to anybody about that. Maybe for you, it's a fear of failure that keeps you from trying new things. Maybe for you, you know, it's the belief that you're not good enough, that, that, that maybe your daddy told you every day growing up. And so now you think, I got to prove myself. I got to prove myself. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to succeed. I'm going to achieve. Maybe for you, it's the abortion that you had years ago. And in, even to this day, you struggle with accepting God's love and forgiveness for you. Maybe for you, it's an addiction that you know is real. You know it is eating you up from the inside out, but you will not tell anybody about it to actually get the help that you need. And, and here's the thing with our hidden selves. We are often willing to go to such great lengths to keep these things a secret, to keep these things hidden about us, that those very things and keeping those things secret begins to control our lives. Like the things that we want to make sure no one else knows ends up controlling us. I love how Dale says it. He said, controlling my secret controls me. Controlling my secret controls me. So here's a question. What are you keeping secret in your life? You know, like, what are you so worried about other people finding out about you? And, and why? Why is keeping that secret so important to you? And, and what kind of damage do you think might be happening, being done in your life because you feel like you have to keep this secret? The hidden self could be a very, very damaging part of us. That's the third quadrant. The final quadrant is the unknown self. And so this is information about myself that's not only unknown to me, but it's also unknown to other people. And so it has yet to be discovered, right? It has yet to be realized. And we all have this part of ourselves too, right? This part that we just haven't experienced. We haven't realized it yet. So maybe it's a talent that we have yet to discover. You know, maybe uh, you have the ability, the propensity to be a great musician, but you've never picked up an instrument or a great artist, but you've never picked up you know, a pencil, right? Maybe for you, it's a hobby that you don't realize that you would really enjoy if you just try it, if you just do it, try something new. Maybe it's a spiritual gift that God's given you, like maybe teaching or serving or something like that, that you haven't taken the time to discover and grow in yet. And, and here's the thing. I agree with what, what Dale says. You'll see it if you listen to this video. Experience is the great discoverer of our unknown self. Experience is the great discoverer of our unknown self. And sometimes we choose those experiences, right? Where we go, all right, I'm gonna try something new. And we try it and we go, wow, that's amazing. I really enjoy that. We try it and we go, that's really not fun for me at all. I'm not gonna do that again, right? Sometimes we choose those experiences. Sometimes those experiences choose us. And we would never choose them on our own. And they're hard things that we walk through. But when we walk through those experiences, there's things about ourselves, the way that God has made us, which I'll talk about here in a second, that we learn right? And so let me ask you, 
How well do you know yourself? What, what, is your, what are your experiences in life teaching you about who you are? What are your experiences in life teaching you about how God has made you to be? Not what other people say, this is who you are. You're good at this, you're not good at this. Do this, don't do that. Don't waste your time there. Not that. But what do your experiences say about how God made you who you are? And are you seeking to discover your unknown self? So, so remember, we're talking about resolving the internal conflict in ourselves. And you look at this window, and here's, here's the reality of this window. All four of these parts of ourselves are in tension, right? They're actually in conflict with one another. So when one becomes bigger, so like when my hidden self becomes bigger and I have lots of secrets, what does that do, for example, to my public self? It makes it smaller, right? Like they're in tension, they're in conflict with one another. And what these guys, what Joe and Harry would say is, and this is really important, what they would say is, you and I are at our healthiest when which window you think is biggest? Our public self. Our public self. You and I are healthiest when the person that I present to other people is who I actually am and other people actually know the true me. And it's liberating, right? Like when I can just be real with who I am, I don't have to pretend anymore. I don't have to hide things anymore. I can be at peace. I can relax, right? My blind spots I'm talking to other people about and saying, help me understand like how I'm coming across here. The hidden things, the secrets in my life. I'm like, I don't want to have secrets. I got to talk through some of this stuff, right? The unknown parts of me. I'm like, I want to discover like who God has made me to be. When those other boxes are smaller and our public self is bigger, there's something like beautiful about that. Like, don't you long for that? Like that to me sounds so good. I can just be myself. I can stop worrying about like other people judging me or what they think about me. You know, I don't have to keep up the charade. I can just relax and be at peace with who God made me to be. So, so this is the Johari window, the Johari window. Um, I want to talk to you now about like what the Bible says about all of this stuff because it is so in sync with what the scriptures say about ourselves. And so you should read, if you haven't read in a while, you should read Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is this incredible psalm that's like all about how God made us just the way that we are, you know? It's like sometimes we can go in life and we can be like, I hate who I am, you know? I hate the, like, how I look or I hate my personality and we like, have this, this terribly negative view of ourselves. You read Psalm 139, you're like, hold on. God made me exactly how he wanted me to be. Not the sin, like that's the part that we choose, right? But we're not defined by our sin. That's not who, what makes us us. God made us us very uniquely. So you read Psalm 139. Let me read you a little part of it here. David's the writer of this psalm. He says, you, God, made all the delicate inner parts of my body. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Like you read that, it goes on and on. You read that and you're like, man, God, God made me who I am, you know? 
And, and maybe some of you, like, that's, that's the one thing you need to hear today. You're not a mistake. You are not God's first mistake, <laughs> right? Like he, he, he was intentional when he made you look the way that you do with the personality that you have, the temperament that you have, the gifts and the strengths that you have. Speaking of gifts and strengths, he made those specifically with you in mind. You read uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 12. It's another chapter you should read sometime. 1 Corinthians 12 is all about these spiritual gifts that God gives us specifically for me to use, not just to hoard, but to use as a blessing to other people for the common good. Listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. There's different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There's different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There's different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, that means you and me, all of us, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To each one of us, God gives the Holy Spirit to operate inside of us in beautiful, unique ways, gifted ways for the common good, for the good of other people. And he goes on, he says, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Like you have gifts. Do you know what those are? You know, Beth, who did the announcements, is like, she's kind of our, um, the, the person on staff who her responsibility is to help you understand your giftedness and find a way to use it to bless other people, whether it's inside this church or outside this church. And do you know like how God has wired you, how he's gifted you? And it's interesting, when you go back to the very beginning of our Bible, to the book of Genesis, and you look at the very first two people that God made, Adam and Eve, right? You look at them, and we've got to read between the lines a little bit, but their public selves would have been huge, right? Their unknown self would, would have probably been pretty big, too, because they're, like, discovering who they are. They're the first two human beings. But their other self and their hidden self would have been tiny, Right? They didn't have secrets. There's a, there's a uh, passage, Genesis 2, 25. Throw that up on the screen. It, it makes me smile every time I read it. But Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Like, talk about my public self being out there, right? Like, naked and no shame. And I don't think it's just physically naked and no shame. We have to read between the lines a little bit, but I think it's also emotionally and socially. They weren't trying to impress each other. They weren't trying to impress God. They're just there, right? Like they could be who they were until sin entered into the world. It doesn't take long in our Bibles to get to the sin part. And now we deal with it too. None of us is perfect. We all struggle with it. You read later in your Bible in Romans 3, it says, none of us is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And as strange as this may sound, I read that and I think, phew, I can set aside the facade, you know? I can stop pretending. I can stop the act. I'm not perfect. I got issues. I got baggage. Sometimes I say stupid things. Sometimes I make bad choices. And so do you. So do each of us. We're all the same that way. And so here's what that does. Think about the hidden self. Here's what that does when we go, man, I'm messed up. The Bible says I am. I know I am. I go, I can stop keeping it a secret now. I can be honest about how messed up I am. Because I know you are too. And the only way that I'm going to get like healing from that and working through that is when I'm honest about it. See how it's like shrinking up the hidden self? 
And sometimes we need help seeing those things. Like sometimes, again, you know, we have this other self where it's like, I, it's a blind spot for me and I can't see them. It reminds me of what it says in Proverbs 27, 6. It says, wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. And I love that. I think it's so wise. You know what that means? It means like when, my, when people that care about me, that really love me, are honest with me, sometimes it hurts, but it's good for me. It's good for me. It's better for me than people that just tell me what I want to hear, right? So again, we go, well, man, who, who in my life could I talk to about this? It's going to be honest with me. It's going to call me out when I act like a knucklehead, you know? Like, who, who's going to do that in my life? And when we start to recognize these parts of ourselves that are sinful and prideful and selfish and impure, we don't just go, well, everybody's like that. And so, you know, oh, well, that's not what we do. We remember God's heart. And we remember that Jesus died to change us, to cleanse us from our sins. And so we confess those things. Like now I'm aware of these things about myself. I can be honest with other people. I'm also going to be honest with God. And I'm going to confess to him. You know what that word confess means? I, I, I think this is really interesting. It means to come into agreement with. That's all it means. So when I confess to God, I come into agreement with him about what he already knows about me. <laughs> he knows how messed up I am. He knows how many stupid things, sinful things I've done in my life. And now I go, and now I'm ready to admit it. That's confession, right? And so we realize these things about us. We confess them to God. We ask him, as we become aware of them, we ask him to heal us, to change us, right? And this is what he does. It reminds me of 1 John 1. He says, if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we've not sinned, we're calling God a liar. We're showing that his word has no place in our hearts. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He'll forgive us and he'll cleanse us. Psalm 32 says, Then I acknowledge my sin to you, God. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Like this is what God does. When we bring it to him, when we confess it to him, he forgives us. Right? And then he cleanses us. He changes us. And there's something about me being honest with God about my sin that makes me not want to sin anymore. Yeah, you ever experience that? Like when I'm finally honest and I confess it to him, there's something about that. I think it's the way he responds. He loves us. He doesn't condemn us. He loves us. When I confess it to him, I go, I don't really want to do it anymore. I don't want to keep hurting you, God. Like he, he changes us from the inside out and he makes us new. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. He transforms us. He renews our mind. It says in Romans 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Like, this is what God does. And so when we, when we start to, like, do this, and we look inside of ourselves, and we're honest about the conflict inside of ourselves, you know what that does? it then prepares us to deal with the conflict that we have with other people. And it's not like I gotta, I gotta be, I, I've worked every issue out in my life. Now I can go on and I can resolve conflict with other people. It's not that. It's like I'm committed to work through my stuff. And I'm humble enough to know that I am imperfect. And God, I need you. There's a humility that's a part of that, right? In resolving the internal conflict within ourselves. But when we do that, man, then... It changes the way that we deal with other people that have hurt us or that we've hurt. Jacking with me? So that kind of leads us back to where we started. 
uh, that get the log out of your own eye, and I'll, and I'll just end with this. Um, so, th so this is what, if you're not familiar with what that means, this is the passage. This is Jesus talking. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank or a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I read that, I don't know how you read that. I read that and I'm like, I gotta work on myself first. I gotta take the plank out of my eye. I gotta begin, I have to be committed to resolve the conflict going on inside of me. Where I go, help me understand the way I'm coming across at times that I hurt you and I don't want to hurt you. Please forgive me, right? Help me understand the way that I'm doing that, the other self. I go, let me, let me be honest with you about stuff that I'm struggling with. Secrets that I've been keeping, the hidden self. And I go, you know what? I want to discover all that God has wired me to be, all he's created me to be. I'm going to step out. I'm going to try new things. The experiences that come my way, I'm going to learn from them. The unknown self, right? This is, how, this is how Sandy says it. I'll end with this. It says, instead of blaming others for a conflict or resisting correction, that's pride, we'll trust in God's mercy and take responsibility for our own contribution to the conflicts. Confessing our sins to those we've wronged, asking God to help us change any attitudes and habits that lead to that conflict, and seeking to repair any harm we've caused. So next week, when we continue on, we're going to talk about, in real practical ways, so as we, I, I get, I got to work on myself first, I got to deal with my internal conflict, next week in real practical ways, we're going to talk about what it looks like for us to resolve the conflict when we are the instigator, when I am the one who's hurt somebody else. And I realize in maybe every conflict that we're in, both sides got a part in that, right? But usually one side has the greater part. So next week we're going to talk about when I have the greater part in that and I've hurt somebody else and how do I resolve that conflict in a healthy way.